0: A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. BEYOND THE LAST LAMP BY THOMAS HARDY NEAR TOOTING COMMON While rain, with Eve in partnership, Descended darkly, drip, 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 Beyond the last lone lamp I passed, Walking slowly, whispering sadly, Two linked loiterers, one downcast, Some heavy thought constrained each face and blinded them to time and place. The pair seemed lovers, yet absorbed in mental scenes no longer orbed by love's young rays. Each countenance, as it slowly, as it sadly, caught the lamplight's yellow glance, held in suspense a misery at things which had been or might be. When I retrod that watery way some hours beyond the droop of day, still I found pacing there the twain, just as slowly, just as sadly, heedless of the night and rain. One could but wonder who they were and what wild woe detained them there. Though thirty years of blur and blot have slid since I beheld that spot and saw in curious converse there, moving slowly, moving sadly, that mysterious tragic pair. Its olden look may linger on, all but the couple, they have gone. Whither? Who knows, indeed. And yet, To me, when nights are weird and wet, without those comrades there at tryst, creeping slowly, creeping sadly, that lone lane does not exist. There they seem brooding on their pain, and will, while such a lane remain. This poem has haunted me for 30 years, since I first read it. Um, Just as the memory of the couple haunted Thomas Hardy for 30 years before, if we can believe him, he wrote it down. Anyone who is familiar with Thomas Hardy's novels will recognise this as a quintessential Hardy-esque scene. We've got a pair of lovers, they're in some kind of trouble, And they're going over and over their situation together and finding no resolution, only what the editor, Sean Coyne, calls the best bad choice. So in story after story, Hardy the novelist presents us with ways in which love's young rays are darkened or blotted out by circumstance. Sometimes it's an unwanted pregnancy, Sometimes it's the discovery or the confession of another lover, or even a spouse or a child. Sometimes they are separated by a class divide or money. Sometimes there's a crime involved, or even a simple mistake like going to the wrong church on your wedding day. Whatever the circumstances, lots of Hardy's characters end up in a situation like this, pacing together at the edge of town on the margins of society, worrying at the problem together or arguing about it, or trying to persuade each other of one course of action over another. But in the case of this poem, we don't know any more than the speaker of the poem knows what is troubling this particular couple. And this is part of the poem's power, because we can only imagine what it is or maybe project our own troubles and dilemmas, past or present, onto this couple. And the fact that we don't know the specific issue heightens our sympathy. I mean, if we knew what the issue was, then depending on our view of the matter or our life experience, we might find ourselves taking sides or passing judgment or explaining it away. But since we don't know, all we can do is empathize with their suffering. The poem also gains a lot of power from the sense it gives of being based on a real situation, an actual experience Thomas Hardy had of seeing a real couple and being unable to forget them, and eventually writing it down and making a poem out of it. Now, obviously I can't prove this is based on a real couple, but Hardy gives us a very strong hint by inserting the words near-tooting common in brackets and small print, just after the title. Using a real place name is unusual in Hardy's fiction. He set most of his stories in the West Country of England, where Hardy and I both grew up. But he fictionalized it, or romanticized it, by calling it Wessex, the name of the old Anglo-Saxon kingdom. So Dorchester became Casterbridge, Weymouth became Budmouth, and my own hometown, Barnstaple, became Downstaple. But he doesn't change the name here. He says the lane was near Tooting Common, an actual place in London, which to me is a pretty strong hint that this is a poem that began with a memory before Hardy's imagination got to work on it. In another poem, Afterwards, where he basically writes his own elegy, Hardy describes himself as a man who used to notice such things, suggesting that the role of the poet is to see the things that others miss and to note them down, to memorialise them. Only this week, you or I may well have walked past a couple just like this one, without giving them a second glance, preoccupied with our own affairs. But the poet notices them. The poet bears witness by writing it down and repeating the tale like the ancient mariner. And the poem doesn't help the couple. No words of Hardy's can change their situation any more than the words that they speak to each other. What the poem does do, marvelously, is to conjure the lane at twilight, with the rain pouring down and the couple hovering at the edge of vision, just about discernible in the light of the last lamp. Listen to that opening stanza. Doesn't it make you shiver? While rain, with Eve in partnership, descended darkly, drip, 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 beyond the last lone lamp I passed, Walking slowly, whispering sadly. Two linked loiterers, one downcast. Some heavy thought constrained each face and blinded them to time and place. And Hardy, you know, as he often does, he does some quite bold things that a lot of us wouldn't dare to do. Uh, Listen to what he does in that second line. Descended darkly, drip, drip, drip. Did you hear that? That's right. He alliterates on every single word in the line. Not even the Anglo-Saxons took it that far. And, of course, if you or I took that to a typical writing class, we'd be told to tone it down a bit. That was just a little bit too much. So thank goodness Hardy lived before the age of writing workshops. And... While I was reading this poem for the umpteenth time and thinking about it for this podcast, I found myself noticing that little phrase, with Eve in partnership. While rain, with Eve in partnership. Now, obviously, Eve here is the poetic shorthand for evening, so he's literally saying that the rain and the evening had conspired in partnership to create the gloomy atmosphere of the scene. Do you reckon there might be a pun on Adam and Eve here? I think there might be, especially as Hardy was very well steeped in the language of the Bible and very much disposed to see human beings and human relationships in particular as inextricably bound up with misery. For example, chapter 2 of his novel The Return of the Native is titled Humanity Appears on the Scene Hand in Hand with trouble. Anyway, another thing Hardy does in the poem, this time with the rhyme and the meter, is quite subtle at first but becomes more and more insistent as the poem goes on. So the rhyme scheme of the poem is basically very simple. We've got three rhyming couplets. So it rhymes AA, BB. CC. So that means that, for instance, in the first stanza, we have rhymes on partnership and drip, the first two lines. Then we have past and downcast, and the last two lines have got face and place. But right in the middle of the stanza, something sticks out. The single word sadly, which doesn't rhyme with anything else. It drives a wedge through the middle couplet, past and downcast, and through the middle of the stanza. And, of course, it's not rocket science to see this as mimetic of the way the sadness has driven a wedge between the two lovers. While rain, with Eve in partnership, descended darkly, drip, drip, drip. Beyond the last lone lamp I passed, walking slowly, whispering sadly, two linked loiterers, one downcast. Some heavy thought constrained each face and blinded them to time and place. Now, I say the word sadly doesn't rhyme with anything else, but as we read on, we find it chiming with itself because the same word appears in the same place in every single stanza, like a bell tolling more and more insistently as the poem goes on. And we notice that each time it's paired with the word slowly. Walking slowly, whispering sadly, as it's slowly, as it's sadly, just as slowly, just as sadly. And... Hardy does something else with these middle lines that makes them stand out from the others in their stanzas, and that's to switch the meter from iambic to trochaic. So what that means is the poem is written in a fairly regular iambic tetrameter. In other words, it's got four iambic feet going ti-tum 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 tum which makes for a fairly conventional and sedate and in this context nicely plangent rhythm but in the middle two lines hardy reverses the meter so instead of ti tum ti tum ti tum ti tum we've got tum ti tum ti tum ti tum walking slowly whispering sadly as it's slowly as it's sadly just as slowly just as sadly. Can you hear that? It's like an eddy in the stream, where the water flows back on itself in a reverse current. And to me, it feels like the pang of sadness or pain or despair that keeps coming back and reminding the lovers of the impossibility of their situation. Actually, in the following line of every stanza, Hardy muddies the metrical waters still further, By using something called a trochaic tetrameter catalectic, but I think I'll spare you that for today. Okay, in the final stanza, we get to the heart of the matter. Having signaled fairly strongly that this is a poem based on fact rather than fantasy, Hardy makes a pretty extraordinary statement. To me, when nights are weird and wet, without those comrades there at tryst, creeping slowly. Creeping sadly, that lone lane does not exist. What we have here is not a lane that exists in objective reality, but a feeling so strong that it's created a little world unto itself, where the lane and the couple and the rain falling on that particular evening are somehow bound up together. The lane's existence depends on the presence of the couple, and as long as the lane exists, it will be haunted by them. There they seem brooding on their pain, and will, while such a lane remain. Listen to that final line again, and will, while such a lane remain. Those last two words, lane, remain, sound a bit awkward together, don't they? A bit like he's labouring the point with the extra rhyme from Lane when he's already got a great clinching couplet with pain and remain. And again, I think if Hardy took this to a modern poetry workshop, he'd be told to tidy it up, to smooth it over, by finding an easy way to avoid the extra rhyme and make it a little more elegant. But he didn't tidy it up. He left it there like a loose end so that it catches on the ear the way the poem catches on the heart each time we hear it. Beyond the Last Lamp by Thomas Hardy Near Tooting Common While rain with Eve in partnership Descended darkly, drip, 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 beyond the last lone lamp I passed, walking slowly, whispering sadly, two linked loiterers, one downcast. Some heavy thought constrained each face and blinded them to time and place. The pair seemed lovers, yet absorbed in mental scenes no longer orbed by love's young rays. Each countenance, as it slowly, as it sadly, caught the lamplight's yellow glance, held in suspense a misery at things which had been or might be. When I retrod that watery way, some hours beyond the droop of day, Still I found pacing there the twain, Just as slowly, just as sadly, Heedless of the night and rain. One could but wonder who they were, And what wild woe detained them there. Though thirty years of blur and blot Have slid since I beheld that spot, And saw in curious converse there, Moving slowly, moving sadly, that mysterious, tragic pair. Its olden look may linger on. All but the couple, they have gone. Whither? Who knows, indeed? And yet, to me, when nights are weird and wet, without those comrades there at tryst, creeping slowly, creeping sadly, that lone lane does not exist. There they seem brooding on their pain and will while such a lane remains. Thomas Hardy was an English novelist and poet who was born in 1840 and died in 1928. He was best known in his lifetime for his novels, most of which were set in the West Country of England, which he fictionalised as Wessex, taking the name from the old Anglo Saxon kingdom. But he thought of himself first and foremost as a poet, writing poetry throughout his adult life and continuing to publish it long after he gave up on novel writing. After his death, his ashes were buried in Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey, and his heart was buried in Dorset with his first wife, Emma. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at mouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and Visual Identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.